Hi and welcome to this episode of Better Off Red. Um, this is episode 91 in the fifth in our Element series. Um, I'm speaking today or in this episode to Kerry Donovan Brown um, about place. Um, Kerry and I have a conversation about Beatrix Potter's The Tale of Samuel Whiskers. Um, it's also called the Roly Poly Pudding in some places. Um, this is a very easy story to get hold of if you. Um, Google it, you're bound to get um, an opportunity to um, read it um, or listen to it. Um, there are quite a few um, audio versions of it. Um, yeah, it's an exciting episode for me um, and wide ranging and yeah, exciting. Um, we talk about a couple of things um, in here which I put links to on our um website which is better-red.com. Um, we talk about um, Kerry's essay Queer Debris, a personal essay on queer love and loneliness in response to Sam Duckle Jones's People from the Pit to Stand Up and Chris Teese's He's So Mask. Um, this is an amazing essay and I just think everyone should read it. Um, it's really, really good. So yeah, um, that's the episode today. I'd like to thank Copyright Licensing New Zealand for um, partially funding this series. Um, I really appreciate it. And um, yeah, I hope you enjoy the podcast. Thanks heaps. There we go. And we are recording. Hi Kerry, how are you? I'm good, Pip. How are you? I'm really good. Yeah, <laughs> it's really nice to be here with you. And um, uh, Coco is here as well, so... Oh, yeah, is that pat sound coming through? Yeah, that pat sounds really good, actually. Oh. Yeah, who knows? Hopefully that's the loudest noise Coco will make. Um, <laughs> Kerry, I was wondering if we could start off with you introducing yourself, however you would like to do that. Cool. Um, call Kerry Aho. My name's Kerry Donovan-Brown. Um, I'm a writer. I was born um, in Waitaha Plains. Um, I lived... A lot of my formative years at Waikuku Beach, which is north of uh, maybe like a half hour drive north of Ototahi. And in 2006, I moved to Te Whanganui Atara, where I spent about 15 years up until kind of recently. Um, and now I'm back down in Ototahi. Yeah. And just in introducing myself, I'll just say for the um, for the benefit of your listeners, Pip, that um Sometimes I can take my time circling around <laughs> a question before I form an answer in my head. So just bear with me and feel free to prompt me if I'm um, floundering. <laughs> <laughs> Kia ora. I will do that. I promise. I promise. Um, so, yeah, um, I've got lots of questions to talk to you about today. And, um, yeah, I'm just putting one in my brain as because I'm just remembering. Actually, I might ask you now. You came up here to originally, a eh, to study um, sort of set design, eh? Yeah, at um, Toy Fakari. So I I came up to study performance design, which part of that, um, at the time, was a um, a four year a four year degree, partly at Massey and partly at Toy Fakari. And um, that involved um, lighting design and set design and some costume design and all kinds of things. Um, and I did I did two years, yeah, of a four year degree before I um, before I moved on to other things. But yeah, toy um, was a, a really nice landing pad for me actually. And I've, I made um, 
some friendships there that are still really important to me today. Yeah. And like, it's kind of, I, I was kind of interested as just rolling that into the whole part of you just because I think, you know, that thinking about space to start off with is, mm. is quite interesting. Um, yeah. Do you think your time there affected your writing or do you think it's just sort of the whole package of who you are when you... Yeah, no, I think it did. Um, uh, so I guess part of m- my moving on from Toy was, um, and I had some help uh, in, in this regard, was realizing that I was a lot more interested in, um, in the writing. So I guess like rather than interpreting someone else's text, um, which was super fun as well, and you know, like a real wonderful thing to do I um I was was pretty apparent I was um more interested in storytelling um and writing the stories and telling the stories um and Penny Fit who was my um who was a head of design at the time we had a really nice corridor where she gave me a text to read I think she gave me mutes and earthquakes and we had a couple of conversations about um what could be the right move for me, whether to stay on and complete that four years or whether um, I should start um, channeling some, like, some real energy into, um, into writing, which, um, which eventually I did. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man, that's so cool. Um, now today you and I are going to talk about the tale of Samuel Whiskers by Beatrix Potter. I just realized I've never said Beatrix out yeah. loud, I don't think. Beatrix. It sounds like a witch's name. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, there is there a witch in, um, in the Harry Potter verse. I think um, there with is. With a trix. There's a trix. Oh, that's why I'm thinking. It's like um, Asterix and Oblix. I'm th- uh, you know how they've all got, yeah, yeah. get a fix and yeah. all those guys. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking of. So you and I have talked a little bit already um like you and I have sort of talked over the years a little Mm. bit about our love of Beatrix Potter Mm. and I was thinking like my first reason for loving her writing was the way that it sounded like I really Mm. enjoy reading out loud and it's really lovely to sort of hear it sounding but um as I sort of got more and more into it, I started to see how it was a little more complex than it at first appears. And I think this story in particular does some interesting things with like narrative structure. Mm. But I guess where I can you talk a little bit about like your relationship to Beatrix Potter? Like mm. what? Yeah. Like how do you feel about their work? Um. I think probably what um, sets Beatrix Potter apart for me is um, when I think about other um, texts that I um, that um, other children's books about animals is that although the animals are kind of performing in like anthropomorphic ways sometimes it, they're not doing it very well this they, their feet are still really in the um in their in the wilderness and their animal kingdoms and they're still you know there's a um they're not not all of the time i think there are some exceptions but they're kind of um like they're not fully incorporated into the human world 
and they look like her illustrations are just uh, sublime they look like animals they don't look like someone's kind of um uh, idea of what like um or what a like a fox uh, should look like or what a um a, a squirrel she like she clearly had like was an ecologist like she was just really interested in the morphology of animals and um i guess to to an extent the behavior of animals and that um that i think in retrospect i think it's something that really drew me to her books because i wasn't that interested in um animals and stories about animals having um, picnics or going to like class or driving trucks or being um, like police officers or, <laughs> or whatever. I wanted like, I, I wanted to go, you know, when I went out into the wetlands with my dad or out hunting, I wanted to be able to imagine these animals like just out of sight or whatever. And that's what she's like, that's what she's reveling in, right? Like so many of her books um that those animals um are literally just out of sight of the humans that are in the books like whether it's benjamin and and peter and their families and um and mr mcgregor and mrs mcgregor or um uh or you know like the jemima puddle duck and, and the fox i forget his name but you, i don't think you ever see a human um, I don't think a human ever appears in that book, but the, you know, there are the, the dogs are set loose and they're in the garden and like she's gathering onions and herbs <laughs> from like a garden made by humans. Yeah. Um, and that's something I, you've put your finger on something that I found so strange reading this. Um, I Not many months go by that I don't read a Beatrix Potter story, but it's so odd the... Um, you know, like the rats and the cats are living together in this. Well, that's we'll talk about that when we talk about like the place. But like the cats eat the rats, <laughs> yeah. and the rats would quite like to eat the cat. <laughs> yeah. And I just thought it's this. It gives this very sinister kind of thing. But also that thing you're talking about. They're not fully integrated into being human. You know, yeah, in a way. Yeah. Um. <clears throat> It's like some sort of like intermediate, um, like morphology yeah. <laughs> of the like oh, you know the <laughs> where they're like um, kind of the Beatrix Potter, um, <laughs> the Beatrix Potter um, like um, chart of evolution. <laughs> it's like <laughs> cat, <laughs> then cat on its hind legs, then human. Yeah, because <laughs> that's so interesting you say that because at the end of this book. Um, it talks about how two of the cats in, um, uh, in, in um, Mrs. Tabitha's family are very good at catching rats. And mm. there's a photo of them catching rats. And they're not um, Anna Maria rats. You know, they're not the rats that we've met yeah. already in the text. Yeah. You know what I mean? They're different rats. <laughs> and I think, other, uh, so it's her daughters, right? It's Moppet and Mittens. Yeah. Remind me, in those pictures... Or when we hear about Moppets and Middens and their um, 
their lives in the future as sort of like uh, rat catchers. Mm. They're not walking around on their high le- hind legs, are they? They're just And they're, they're not dressed, I don't think, not either. Dressed. Yeah. And they um, pin the tails of the rats up on a wall. Right. Which is just so delightful. So, so many problematic queens in the, <laughs> in the tale of Savior Whiskers, like Tabitha Twitchard and her like locking her kittens in a... <laughs> <laughs> under the stairs and beating them in the tale of Tom Kitten, the, the previous novel, a novel, <laughs> the previous story. Um, oh, and who was my, oh, and Anna Maria clearly is a problematic queen. Like I fucking love when she says to, um, when like, oh, like Samuel Whiskers is such a creep and he's like, <laughs> like Anna Maria, like do it properly. Like, like make the pudding with crumbs. And she's like, Fuck off, Samuel. <laughs> like, I'm going to tow it with dough. I'm going to tow it how I like it. I'm the one. You're the one, like, sitting around on your, like, pile of rags, like, doing snuff. I'm the one, like, <laughs> running around. So, like. Because even that, like, I found really interesting is this seems like Tom's story, but we've already got a Tom Mitten story. So this one is uh, Samuel Whiskers is who the tale is named after. Yeah. Yeah. You know, he, he does. <laughs> Definitely. And the pudding, we must say, I mean, people can read this story, but the pudding is um, Tom, isn't it? Like we're making a pudding out of Tom. Um, You talked a little bit about that sort of pantry under the stairs. Um, Often when I think of Beatrix Potter, I think of her as like this writer of the outdoors and Mm. the, um, you know, the garden and that sort of thing. But the story takes place in this house Mm. and this house has all these liminal spaces you know Mm. like there's the pantry there's the attic and i don't know like what did you how do you read that house i mean that house is a forest Mm. (laughs) like Uh (laughs) yeah that um, that's how i yeah that's how i read it um and it's again it's that kind of weird um beatrix potter thing where um like do those cats even belong in that house like (laughs) do, do is that their owner's house or do they own the house or are they just sort of, um, cause it doesn't really feel like they properly belong there. The how ha- like there's this, I think my favorite picture, um, my favorite, there, there are lots of beautiful pictures and some of them are, um, how do you say like sketches mm. are just like the black yeah. and white ones. And some of them are the, the painted, those exquisite painted pictures. And one of the first ones is her, um, standing at the, like, um, just ahead of maybe a set of stairs or by the banister and, um, she's holding her hands and this kind of like out in front of her a little bit, like she looks really lost. She looks like someone who has entered a wood and is already kind of lost. And there's this beautiful purple, um, you know, like again, the spaces in this book compared to some of the other interiors and Beatrix Potter the ceilings are so high Mm. hilltop farm house and it's only I had to look at some pictures it's only a two-story house Mm, mm. but when you look at these illustrations it looks like that there are no ceilings um and these like this in that particular image the curtain looks like the trunk this big purple trunk of a tree and the banisters and it looks like a woman lost in the woods and um you were saying earlier about like you know the rats live there (laughs) the cats live there 
like someone must have hung those curtains so like (laughs) oh and um and you know even like um I love some of the little (laughs) I love some of I'm I'm really into arthropods like invertebrates insects and etc and there's some really great and Mrs the tale of Mrs Tittlemouse Mm. there's some really great arthropods and bumblebees I think um who are kind of really sinister but also kind of clown clowns um but in the tale of samuel whiskers there's a um a spider who um is observing them Mm. like Mm. wrapping up the kitten like preparing to eat it and um and the spider's like I, i forget the line but you know the spider's like knows something about tying because she's tying up blue bottles so you get like you get this whole kind of ecosystem existing in the house. You've got rats, you've got cats, you've got um, the blue bottles and spiders. And at one point, the the carpenter's dog mm, or is mm, a dog mm, a carpenter. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, you get a canid coming in on the scene and um, Ribby. Um, uh, and everyone seems to be able to talk to each other. Yeah. There yeah, seems to be a degree of common going on there. Yeah. Um, and like... This, oh, I just, I like this sort of idea of the house. I love what you say about that idea of the house as a forest because there are, I get the sense that things are not cat sized either. Mm. Like, and I think that when the rolling pin comes out, when the rat gets the rolling pin, it's not a, it's not like a little rat sized rolling pin, is it? Yeah, it's a human sized rolling pin. You're yeah, right. yeah. Um, can we talk a little bit, I don't know if this is interesting to talk about for you, but one thing I was really interested in is the idea of these two sets of families living in the one space. Mm. And there's an amazingly freaky scene where Tom kind of tumbles into um, um, the Whiskers um, house mm. and it says that he's never been there before. Mm. And it sort of started me thinking about portal fiction, like this idea of sort of this has always been there like the the rats have always lived there and he's heard them in the walls and he's seen them sort of on the ground but so there's this echo of their lifestyle but then he goes through the portal into the place Mm. and I was wondering about your fiction sort of two ideas first of all I was thinking about that story that I got to read of yours a little while ago which sort of deals directly with this you know like Mm. there's a it's almost time travel tourism isn't it in Mm, a way yeah yeah And I wonder how, do you think, like in a story like that, do you think the past, we do hear echoes of it and that kind of thing, and there is the opportunity to travel through to it? I'm just wondering about how you thought about it in that story, maybe. Um, That kind of, um, in my story is in, the portal is in like, um, moving from somewhere to familiar to somewhere unfamiliar and how that that's a sort of tradition in terms of mm, mm. yeah um yeah i with the story um that you're talking about um am i allowed to say the name of that story yeah, yeah. shall we let's do that <laughs> dragon and dragonfly which is um uh, um i'm really excited to have it published and um out there which is an upcoming um anthology of Takatapui LGBTQIA plus writing from the last 35 years in Aotearoa. Did I say AU, 
AUP or Columbia University Press are putting that out. It's going to be friggin' amazing. <laughs> I'm not even going to start listing names um, because, <laughs> yeah, it's just absolutely jammed packed with um, with um, wonderful authors and writers. And um, I've been lucky enough to read some of the pieces, and they're just a triumph. Um, anyway, so uh, Portal Fiction. Um, yeah, I think um, with Dragon and Dragonfly, where um, we have like a research station at Howl Creek um, in the late Cretaceous, um, and we have a group of researchers there, um, kind of like observing dinosaurs, and like you'd think maybe you know that there are researchers there doing um, more um, conventional kind of research, but um, <laughs> but also uh, how I kind of dream of um, that research station is that there are um, like artists are kind of given grants and doing, there's all sorts of research there, all kind of different methodologies of research. Um, but in writing that, it was really a <laughs> Is this really self-centered? Uh, it was, I, I talk about that short story as a spiritual sibling, or I guess an actual sibling of an essay I wrote for the Panagraph Punch, which um, was um, about queer solitude. It was in response to um, two really amazing um, books of poetry. Uh, and when I, um, by um, two queer writers to, uh, of, of Aotearoa, Chris and Sam. Um, and I also was thinking a lot about, um, I had, had been working at, um, for gender minorities, Aotearoa, um, uh, facilitating, um, co sorry, coordinating volunteers at Auntie Dunn's op shop. And I, um, during the time that I was working for GMA, um, Dana DeMilo, who was the inspiration behind um, uh, Auntie Dana's Upshop, passed away. And um, the national coordinator of GMA, Ahiwi Hongi, and myself went to um, Dana's house to start packing up some of her stuff. And um, she had left it all to the Upshop, or most of it. Um, minus some special things for special friends. Um, so I had thought a lot about um, uh, um, queer solidarity and queer solitude and written about it in response to um, Sam and Chris's uh, incredible books of poetry, um, He's So Mask and People from the Pit Stand Up. And in thinking about that, I finally gave, I finally was able to give this story, I, this vision I had of, um, of a person um, observing dinosaurs in the late Cretaceous, which I just fucking love dinosaurs. I finally was able to give that story legs, and it meant some, and it meant something to me all of a sudden. Um, and like in terms of. Um, how did you describe it, Pat? Portal fiction. Yeah. Um, I think I'm interested in when I'm really interested in the idea of people um, 
moving from the ordinary existence into other worlds. Um, and because it like, yeah, I mean, it, it gives you an opportunity to, um, to like play with parable and, um, and to kind of give legs to things that, um, kind of make things that can be really internalized, really vivid and, mm, and, mm, mm. um, and, um, oh, hi Coco. Um, really vivid. And what's the word I'm looking for? Um, and dramatic <laughs> and like, mm. you know, they give them the drama that they feel inside your head and like have it kind of outwardly expressed in terms of Samuel Whiskers they're like this we've already talked about how this like house how hilltop um the hilltop farmhouse is um maybe like a wilderness space for the cats but it's also a domestic space um and you kind of move in and out of that kind of feeling as you go you know because of you see um there's the rolling pins, there's the, um, you know, like the, um, the stove top and the, 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 these really super, um, domestic spaces like the kitchen. And then you go into these weird kind of underworlds or overworlds, I guess, cause he got, does he go up the chimney? Yeah, he and, goes up the chimney. Um, yeah, it, yeah, it's like, it, it's, it's kind of only just comparable to stories like Narnia because there is that like um that Tom is pulled from his normal existence but most of the characters except the um except Tabitha and Ribby I guess are constantly kind of moving in between mm, mm, the mm. um <laughs> the the um the real world and this kind of hidden like shadow world mm. of yeah, gosh, that was a bit of a ramble. Did that, was did that make very, any sense? It was so interesting, <laughs> and it kind of blew my mind a little bit. Um, I was looking at um, Lamplighter again this morning um, and thinking how everything you're saying I can sort of see reflected in that as well. This idea that um, Paul Beagle is kind of this place that speaks to the 1990s in a way but also is overlaid with... Um, a different kind of culture, a different kind mm. of technology, a different kind of peoples maybe. And I don't know, like exactly like what you're saying with the house um, and Samuel Whiskers, there's this very interesting, um, there's almost like a vibration as you move through the book. Like, you know, you, and I'm wondering, I mean, I know it was quite a while ago that you wrote the book, but mm. I just wonder, did you start with that world or was that something that changed in the writing? Like, did it become clearer in the writing what the world looked like? Or, yeah, can you remember? Because it was interesting. Like, the first time I read it, I was actually in Waikuku Beach um, visiting, um, yeah, Brent's mum. And, like, it was very um, – it sort of changed the experience of being there reading it. Yeah. But I don't know. Can you talk about anything to do with how you built that amazing place? Yeah, I um... – 
So I first, I, I, um, I wrote The Lamplighter first of the short story and um, the, that short story was, can, I think there was a stop bank. Mm. Um, so the Lamplighter is moving um, every every morning and night like (laughs) um, is uh like um lighting his lamps along that stop bank and then maybe there in the short story there's a house um and i guess it was easy to think about it was easy for um uh waikuku beach to inform the setting of that story and the wings when i'm when it's so contained uh, but then when I was expanding on that world and, and working on that novel um, during my MA year at the IIML, um, I guess I, d- I did have to make some decisions around um, around the naming of places and around of, like, was it Waikuku or was it the sidestepped Waikuku? How much of it was Waikuku and how much it wasn't Waikuku? And I don't know. I feel I haven't read that book and um, since it was published. And I'm a little nervous too. Mm. Um, I probably need to be a little bit more fearless. Because I, you know, like I wonder about... Um, uh, since um, writing Lamplighter, I've learnt a lot more about um, indigenousness and Aotearoa. Um, I feel and and learning more about Te Ao Māori and Māori tanga. My um, identity as a Pakeha has been enriched, and um, and I'm and I. I'd, think it's <laughs> I'm a little uncomfortable now with um, with writing with taking Waikuku Beach um, and then um, renaming it mm. and um, re- renaming places I think I call um, I think I name a mountain and um, and Lamplighter broken tooth and in my head <laughs> that mountain's Maunga Tere mm. um, also, known, also known as Mount Grey um, so so how does that sort of learning manifest itself in what you're writing now you know mm. what I mean like do you could you can you would you how do you articulate that change in um, approach to place? Yeah, I think, um, I'm not sure if this is answering it, but I thought about if I ever to, to if I ever were to revisit the world of Lamplighter, um, because it is, Lamplighter is really deeply informed by personal experiences and by place. Mm, mm, mm. Um I wondered whether there was a, like a really genius way to write a um, follow-up to Lamplighter um, in, a, in a way that I don't feel quite genius enough to like <laughs> <laughs> um, to write yet, and to have to have um, Waikuku Beach, to have the Waitaha Plains, um, 
existing alongside candles kind mm. of poor beagle and mm. and you know candles um uh come from this tradition of storytelling and and poor beagle and um has come from a tradition of covering up um as you find out later on in the novel it's come from a tradition of um creating mythology around um secret and and shame um so maybe in the telling of maybe lamplighter is um is um the place in lamplighter is um an invention mm, of mm, uh of candle mm. and if i were to ever revisit um lamplighter it would be I think it's a couple a few years ahead of me, but it would be about re reconciling some of those, um, you know, g- growing up in a, in a really dysfunctional family and how, how, in what ways can we re- reconcile that? Um, and I think if I were to revisit, it would have to be about, it would have to be candle acknowledging their kind of version of, of that space mm. <laughs> of the the swamp brink mm. um and but also waikuku beach existing and mm. yeah this is all speculative oh i was gonna say i want to read that book like now <laughs> just go ahead that'd be great <laughs> hey i didn't prep you for this question so it's totally cool not to answer it but when you were talking about um auntie dana's and i was thinking about queer space and the idea that the importance of that, like how um, homes can sometimes not be friendly places Mm. um, and how these new places are kind of carved out a little bit. I don't know, like, do you have any thoughts on that? Like, Um, When you say new places carved out, do you mean like um, Auntie Dana's? Yeah, I think I do. I just remember... um, yeah, I, I'm just thinking how important that place was for members of my family to be able to go there and your wonderful hosting of them sort of inviting them in and stuff like that. And I'm just thinking, you know, like that, you know, the alternative, I guess, is, um, you know, like not having a place to be that's warm and dry. And yeah, yeah I don't know. Like, I don't know. Yeah, I like um, I'm. I totally hear you and I think like probably people um heaps of people who experience marginalization um are also really interested in world building or like portal fiction or um or who have really developed an instinct for um I don't necessarily want to say invention, but for an instinct for finding places for found family. And yeah. Um, um, and you know, like I, I'm really, I've really had the, the honor of visiting. I'm down in Ototahi now. And for the last several weeks, I've um, gone along to Qtopia's, uh, um, they have, meetups and mm, f- mm. for different age groups and it is as um a 
trans non-binary person and as a um, member of the LGBTQ community, it was really, um, it was quite incredible to walk into this space and to see it thriving, mm. to see the space, um, to see the people there thriving and, and, and abundance, <laughs> an abundance of thriving people and, and f- for spaces like that to exist that didn't really exist for us when, mm. um, or maybe weren't as apparent for for us when we were younger. Because mm. um, I also, it, that thing you're saying, sorry, it's just sparking all these, it's amazing. Um, I'm just, I'm reading Samuel Delaney at the moment and like in there there's this constant sort of offering of a new, um, all sorts of new ways of being if you know what I mean like new ways of thinking about family new ways Mm. of thinking about caring and I'm I I was thinking that I I just really what I'm saying is I agree with what you're saying I think that um I'm always really scared because sometimes it sounds like I'm saying oh marginalization is great for writing and I I just wish everyone could be treated well and but I do think it is there's something about that worldview that offers a different you know all sorts of possibilities Mm. that I think and Mm. and that's what makes me excited as I feel like as space is made for some of those I think there's more possibility as we go forward I don't know like yeah like kind of like I I was listening to Hinamawana Baker um did an interview uh last night um and yeah yeah they were they were talking about this idea of um it being absolutely world saving you know Mm. what I mean like that if we could listen to different people's ideas especially around the planet you know like especially around ecology and stuff Mm. I don't know sorry I've gone on a tangent now (laughs) I yeah I um it is really uh um I keep on like going for words that could be misconstrued as kind of um, negative. Words are tricky, yeah. Yeah. But I, I, it is kind of almost shocking to me to, um, um, to witness, (laughs) um, you know, the work that, um, that goes into a, you know, yeah, that to witness, you know, like people working, I'm striving for um, for to to accommodate um, and to um, to accommodate and to um, nourish <laughs> um, yeah yeah blah yeah. blah blah. <laughs> <laughs> I was reading an article about gender trouble this morning in Butler, and I was thinking, oh, language, language is just no good. <laughs> it's like you almost want to do that thing you're talking about, where there's more than one world happening at the same. Like I always want to use more than one word at the same yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, like yeah. Um, can we talk? Because we're sort of. I mean, like this is a bit of a segue, but um. In a review I was reading of Lamp Ladder this morning, it was talking about animals mm. and in your work. And I was thinking about the dinosaurs that are in, um, in, in you know, Dragon, Dragonfly. And that's right, eh? Yeah. 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 And um, I don't know. Do you just want to talk a little bit? I Like, I think you're one of the greatest writers of animals in <laughs> New Zealand. The world, perhaps. <laughs> um, but um, do you want to talk about why it's important to include that part of the ecosystem in your work? 
Yeah, um, it's a, it can be a little bit difficult to unpack for me because I just from my um, from um, the beginning of <laughs> time for me, I, I'm just, <laughs> from when I was forged, <laughs> um, first forged, I have just felt an incredible um, connectedness with um, with animals. Um, I was taken out of, um, can you believe that I was in that when I was um, in primary school, uh, in a public school, religious instruction um, was still a thing. But anyway, mm. um, my mum took me out of religious instruction because I came home one day and was like, they said serpents were evil. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> um, I was like, they're not, are they, mom? <laughs> she was like, I think we should take you out of religious instruction. <laughs> and can you believe, like, I, I won't tell you what primary school I went to because maybe I'm misremembering, but I wasn't even given a, um, like, I think a lot of the time I was just sitting on the, the deck outside the classroom. Like, um, Yeah, I was taken out of religious study as well. And yeah, I used to sit in the, yeah, we just used to sit outside. There was no other alternative. <laughs> it was just like, yeah. bye. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was so bad. <laughs> yeah, so, um, yeah, transfixed by the, um, the world around me. And I probably, I have my parents to, um, in part to thank for that because they, um, I, um, before she passed away, I, I was talking to my nan about my dad as a kid. And I always assumed that, so I never knew my dad's father. He died when I was about four. And I always assumed that my grandfather had instilled in my dad a love of the outdoors, but that, um, couldn't be farther from the further, further from the truth. Um, dad had discovered that by himself, mm. which um, I thought was really incredible. And um, my mum, who I, d I don't think um, she would mind me saying, she um, came from quite a dysfunctional um, family growing up. She told me that um, amid this dysfunction, when she wanted to, um, you know, right from when she was really young, when she wanted to... Um, talk to God because she was raised in a Catholic community she instinctually would seek out wilderness spaces so she would go out to um, pastures or and um, when she was feeling really sad and frightened and that's where she thought she could um, create a conduit mm, <laughs> straight mm, to mm. the angels or whatever so my parents um, found a lot of contentment in the outdoors and they had discovered they discovered that by themselves that wasn't necessarily installed in them um and yeah isn't isn't nature weird because i i feel like i um came forth <laughs> just yeah. with um you know already with a um a relationship with the nat natural world and um i loved animals um and, you know, like I, I, I also have been really lucky to work at, um, to work at places like Tamara Atane, Zelandia Sanctuary, and, um, have been taught and trained by incredible people like, um, Raywin Ebsen, who was one of the founders, um, one of the first people to work at Zelandia. And, um, 
yeah i i i I just think (laughs) i think about animals a lot yeah and in writing about them i also yeah I, I guess if, if that's really kind of you to say that I write animals well, Pip, and if I think about the animals I've written, maybe that's an easier way for me to, to have this corridor. Um, there's the dog god mm-hmm. from Lamplighter. Mm-hmm. It's like a, um, uh, an, um, an animal um, in a circus um, of mysterious origins who can speak, who can um, echo human voice. Um and I've written about dinosaurs in this new story, in particular uh, um, an allosaur relative and a triceratops, my fave, my big fave. Uh, and I guess I quite often, um, <laughs> um, yeah, my my um, there there are often animals in my scenes, mm, just like mm. <laughs> existing. <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah, it's. I guess it's just my palette. Hmm. I like paint with animals, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I so love that. Hey, talking about like um, the, not only are there dinosaurs there, but there's also, um, I'll probably use the wrong word, but like prehistoric plants and landforms as well. And yeah. um, there's one particular moment in the water like where the character, the protagonist kind of enters the water. And I was wondering, like, it's hard because we all do this kind of intuitively, but was it exciting to sort of think about what water might have felt like in those days? And like, you know, like what the, you know, what the trees might have looked like. So exciting. So nice. It's just, (laughs) oh my gosh, it's like heroin for me. Yeah. (laughs) Um, yeah, it's really, um, I'm, I'm, I follow on social medias, a few paleo artists mm-hmm. and that sounds like maybe people who are painting with like raw meat or, um, <laughs> 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 no carbs, uh, yeah, no carbs. <laughs> um, but people who, um, so these aren't paleontologists who are going out into, um, you know, to deserts or whatever, to excavate fossils there, um, people who study research papers and um, and learn a lot about prehistoric life and then um, and then try to recreate them most often in, um, in drawings and um, paintings and drawings and yeah etc and it's really super cool it's such an exciting um, it must be such an exciting job and I, I imagine a really frustrating job. Um, like the frustration braided with the excitement because when we think about these animals um, where we are constantly reinterpreting mm. the data we have and mm. and especially today when um, paleontologists have incredible technology available to them and that they they're not even always having to excavate the fossils or when they do they can they're looking at soft tissue or the um i think pip i've like marveled with you before how um paleontologists can look uh through super powerful microscopes at the feathers of um, dinosaurs and um can look at the proteins or that sorry can look at um maybe proteins fossilized proteins that indicate color so like ankyonis 
um, we know pretty sit with a lot of certainty the color of mm. the feathers of the super fluffy dinosaur. Um, 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 yeah, so pa paleontologists, uh, um, so sorry, paleoartists are doing this incredible storytelling, which is informed by research and their own kind of interpretation of research that they're reading to, um, to create, um, to create a sense of, um, what, uh, these life forms look like and even and how they interact with the water around them. So blah, blah, blah. I'm, I'm not always doing that. I'm mm. not, um, mm. in, in the writing of the story, I'm, um, I'm sure I've made some mistakes in the, in the drawing of, of the world. Um, but you know, like I, I love, I love speculating about prehistoric worlds. I like, um, and I, I love that speculation and the speculation that those kind of speculative zones in paleontology where we can be like, okay, so, um, Spinosaurus <laughs> there, um, you know, were they, were they moving through the wetlands like a heron or were they swimming through the wetlands like a crocodile? Like, and what in their, um, morphology and what in their skeleton is like um backing up um the idea that they're moving through like here and yeah i'm i'm um i hate if any paleo artists are listening to this <laughs> because i'm like um i'm probably not doing the incredible work they do justice but it, yeah it was just such a joy to like do a little bit of speculation in the vein of um their um, the work that they do recently I, I was sort of um thinking about like the real and the unreal and like this idea um what this is kind of where my brain is at the moment but this idea that the past is a you know like a collection of data and then we speculate about the mm. far past I often think about that about yesterday if you know what I mean <laughs> like and then and then that makes me think about today like I'm like you know like all that sort of stuff around, you know, my perception of the world versus the world as it is, kind of. And, yeah, I just, um, I just, I really, those sorts of things really excite me. Like, I think that first time that they um, put the mower's neck down, uh, you know, yeah, like, yeah. And, like, I was like, <laughs> whoa, that's amazing. Yeah, well, there's so much exciting stuff in Aotearoa as well, like, um with the Poakai, that big eagle and more, um, and what we like, because they, um, of colonial violence, um, Tangata Whenua have lost so many of their stories, um, or it's been really difficult to retain so many of their stories and how, um, our relationship with the natural world can, um, can occasionally, um, be, uh, what's the word I'm looking for when the natural world is also a holder of our histories? Mm. Um, and um, when we think about Poakai and more, um, we can make some pretty good guesses that um, because of how raptors, because of how birds of prey hunt, because they have hollow bones for flight, um, they couldn't afford to get into big wrestling matches with the prey they were eating um, more and these big geese. So we have a pretty, we can be pretty certain in that they um, would instantly kill them more probably by um, 
striking the spinal column um, just um, at the base of the neck with such incredible force that um, the spinal column would shatter. So knowing that's how they hunted, you know, that's some pretty good evidence that um, Moana Nui people who, um, when they first arrived here and for hundreds of years afterwards were um, were in peril from mm. these incredible predators um, and you know and that I, I guess that kind of piece of evidence um, that speculation alongside other beautiful pieces of evidence like in um, is it near Timaru where those cave drawings are of mm. the Pohokai yeah um, something that I'm really interested in and not really qualified to talk on is how um, the natural world can be keeper to our histories and how we can tap into that. And yeah. Cause I was just thinking around that, you know, that's something that I really, when I think about Beatrix Potter and I think about your writing, um, there's not a shying away from violence, if you know what I mean. Like mm. there isn't, um, and often the violence is, um, the violence is often presented not in a judgy kind of way, if you know what I mean. And, and like, I think it was interesting. I, I know very little about Beatrix Potter's life and, but I did read something the other day that was talking about, it was talking about her as a Gothic artist. And then I read a review where someone talked about you as a Gothic mm-hmm. writer. And I don't know, like I, I'm wondering, you know, this relationship in the world that, you know, it is, I mean, I, you know, every time I try to talk to someone about this, they just quote Blake at me, you know, that nature is, you know, red and tooth and claw. But I just wonder how, you know, I don't know, have you got any thoughts about that? Like how, and you've, you've talked about colonial trauma and colonial violence. And yeah, I just wonder, yeah, like, especially when writing about animals. And th- there's some violence in your story between the dinosaurs. Then mm. you know, the dinosaurs are doing what dinosaurs are doing, if you yeah. know what I mean. Well, yeah, when we, that's such a good point about violence in Beatrix Potter. And I, and an, an analogue to that, I'm using that word right, analogue, um, for me would be... Um, 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 Murakami, oh no, no, sorry, Miyazaki, mm-hmm. Miyazaki, yeah, yeah, yeah. and how, when you look at Ghibli films alongside um, Disney films, the villains are behaving in really different ways, and they well, are more complex, more complicated characters, like um, Lady Eboshi, mm, mm, um, mm. she's a, um, a like, uh, she, um, her industry is um, destroying the forest, she's like actively trying to just, to um, assassinate the spirit of the forest, and she's but she's also um, a champion of marginalized people in the world of Princess Mononoke, and she um, she um, provides um, sanctuary for um, for lepers, and she employs and um, treats um, marginalized women um, sex workers really well. I um, mean, you know, yeah, the, the city is essentially run by, um, by women. Um, so, um, and Beatrix Potter, I guess, is like, she's like, yeah, that fox is gonna fucking eat Jemima Puddleduck mm, if, mm, if mm. he can. But he's not, um, he's not like, um, 
this dastardly kind of villain. He's not like um, uh, Scar from The Lion King, or he's not malicious. He just wants um, like a girl. A girl's got to eat, right? Mm. Um, and I think I'm really, you know, and maybe that's something that we all learn from um, those of us who are fascinated by ecosystems in the natural world. We we like we learn and learn that um, that there are no the real villains, <laughs> and then you know, like it might be horrible to see. Um, you know, like a pack of hyenas, um, like find some like cheetah cubs and kill them. But you know, like the, the hyenas are feeding their, what a hyena baby's called, like <laughs> pups. Puppies. Puppies. I think puppies cute. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I, I'm, I'm like, me, yeah, maybe that's a common thread. And uh, I, I like I, it's it's hard because I, I don't like I'm not a huge fan of like c- c- like um, taking a second look at um, at villains and giving them like a re- redemption mm, or like mm, 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 mm. Um, sometimes people are, are just sometimes villains are really villainous. Mm, like mm, we mm. like. Um, we don't like always need to put in the energy or effort to understand <laughs> like a um, someone's motivation. It was being a real shit. Um, but uh, I guess, yeah, it's. Because one thing I was thinking about, which has been really interesting for me to revisit Beatrix Potter as an adult, mm. or sort of to sort of almost first read her as an adult, apart from Peter Rabbit is that I always thought they were moral sort of stories, you know, Mm. like don't steal, don't do this, don't do that. But then when I read them, I realise the morals are so much more interesting and complicated in them. And, and, um, yeah, and I think, you know, I know this sounds crazy, but I almost see like this parallel with almost like Mary Gates skill or, you know, like there's this, there are these worlds happening Mm. But it's not as simple as fox is bad, duck is good. Yeah. yeah. And, well, and I think, I don't know, I just think it's really interesting. I totally get that because I was kind of shocked when I um, looked at, because I was looking at the Samuel Whiskers Wikipedia to see if there were any like kind of interesting yeah. um, uh, little commentaries on like, yeah. But one of the first lines in the plot is the theme of this tale is the childhood sin of disobedience. And I was like, what? <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. And I, um, so that's like somebody, I guess you can put your own interpretation. Of anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The author of this Wikipedia article sure did. Um, one of my favorite, I love, the tale of Samuel Whiskers, I find it, yeah, super scary. Um, yeah, super weird. Um, but I think my favorite is the tale of Squirrel, Squirrel Nutkin. Oh, yeah, we've talked about this before. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. And, you know, th- these are, I'm like, c- um, correct me if I'm wrong, listeners, but I think the squirrels of who, um, the squirrels of Squirrel Nutkin and um, and Old Brown, the owl in the story, are some of 
the least uh, um, and these animals aren't that concerned in reading as human or like incorporating mm, themselves mm, into mm, the mm, human mm. world they, the little squirrels ride rafts <laughs> and they have these kind of pagan traditions like paganist traditions and making offerings to the owl and that and the owl lives in an oak tree I think and he, there's like a little chimney and and things like that but they, they're not I don't think they dress in human clothes um and squirrel yes i guess I, i'm why i bring it up is that i thought maybe i could um we could wonder about what according to the person who wrote this wikipedia article what might the um the like the theme or the moral of squirrel nut can be other, other than like f- for me it's like like why even bother like okay like the squirrels naughty we we get it but it's like it's being part of this like this squirrel kind of like refusing to or being unable to like um operate in in the in the world of these other squirrels who are like going out to hard working and they're like killing moles <laughs> and, and like and like raiding ha- like um beehives and like collecting all kinds of food to take back to the mainland and and um um in the mean and in payment of being able to do that on this island uh, um uh, making these gifts to old brown um and i think the real buzz like the what i kind of revel at what I love about that story is that um, you have this little window into this kind of pagan, like mm, strange mm, mm, mm. other way of being. And, um, and it's, it's not about like, Oh, like, I don't think I ever read that story and was like, Oh, I better not like be a little <laughs> asshole to like <laughs> that giant owl that lives down the street or I better not like pull pranks or whatever. It's just that. Yeah. There's some great, um, culty kind of stuff in there as well like, yeah. like it's just i was watching i watched the witch the other day and i was thinking about squirrel. <laughs> <laughs> oh because you're on your horror movie yeah um, era. I'm, on my, I'm on my horror movie trip at the moment it's so good but did you yeah. like the witch i loved it yeah i really liked it i really really liked it that scene with oh anyway <laughs> we were going off on a tangent and we're almost done like i mean we're, um uh, yeah, I think, I don't know, I feel like I just want to have you back again when we do something else and talk to you again, because that's just been amazing. You've kind of blown my mind. Um, I don't know. Thank you so much. Thanks, Pip. So nice to be in your house and, to, and with Coco and you and to be talking about <laughs> scary rats. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the, sc- the scariest rats and your whiskers. Coco, you're back. <laughs> Thank you so much. Okay, um, now for an exercise, <laughs> um, I Kerry talks about how we can make things that are internally dramatic, outwardly, outwardly expressed in place or setting or world. And what I was thinking, um, what I played around with myself was the idea of thinking of something that is dramatically um like internally dramatic, um, an emotion, a memory, an idea, and then expressing it as landscape. And I approached this a couple of ways. One was I took an existing landscape and tried to project 
the internal drama onto that landscape. Another way that I tried was to actually um, build a landscape from that internal dramatic. So yeah, I don't know. Um, I found it really, really, really interesting personally. Um, I feel like um, a bit slow off the mark that this hadn't occurred to me before, but um, yeah, it was really fun. So yeah, I hope you have a good day. Thanks. Thanks.